0: On Sunday mornings, we're looking for answers to a very important question. Why did God the Father send his Son into this world? And in this little series, we're finding the answers in things that Jesus himself specifically said. He told of reasons why he came into the world. And this morning, this is our third answer to that question. The answer that Jesus gave, to give his life a ransom for many. We're in Mark chapter 10 and we find the 12 disciples in something of a disagreement. There's some rather bad feeling amongst them. There's a division that has opened up between them. It's a very lopsided division. It's 10 Verses 2, it's being caused by the two, James and John. In verse 37, we find them going up to Jesus and saying this to him. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Hmm. Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, In your glory. Uh, When you read this account in Matthew's Gospel, uh, he suggests that it was their mother who asks the question, or, or maybe she put them up to it. Sometimes parents go too far in pushing their children forward. Any pushy parents listening? We need to be careful. Well, it's no surprise, is it, to see that a question like that doesn't go down well with the other ten disciples. Promoting yourself above your peer group, putting yourself forward as being one step above all the others, is never a smart move. In the church, we discover in the Bible that the way things happen is that, Others in the church recognize someone else's character, their gifting, their aptitude, their abilities. And that's how they come to be invited to take up specific works of service in the church. And you see that in the appointing of deacons in Acts chapter 6. You see it in the qualifications and appointing of elders and deacons In Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus you see it in the suitability of Timothy being recognized both by the church and by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 16 and as we've seen in our studies through various letters of Paul in the New Testament he goes to great lengths to explain as far as he himself is concerned he is not a self-appointed apostle. He was chosen and called by Christ in a unique and specific way. And that principle, of course, is even seen all through the Old Testament as God called and appointed leaders and prophets for his people. Self-promotion, self-appointment has no place the church well that's not our theme this morning but this situation that the disciples are in as this passage opens up well it, it prompts us to bear those things in mind now Jesus addresses this bad feeling that's there amongst the 12 by rebuking James and John but in doing so he lays down a really important principle that actually applies to everybody and he addresses all of his disciples as he says it he says you know that those who are considered rulers over the gentiles lord it over them so many do don't they in this world they're great ones exercise authority over them But it's the manner in which they do it that's the issue so often isn't it Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. You might remember a few weeks back, Mr. Olliot talking about the fact that the church needs to be served by elders There it is. Well, that's quite a statement, isn't it? But even that actually isn't our theme this morning. Because Jesus went on to say something even more astounding in the next verse. Where he says, even the Son of Man, referring to himself, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. If there's anyone who could expect to be served. If there was anyone who was worthy of being served, it's God in the form of Christ. But Jesus says, that's not why I've come. I've come to serve you, not to have you serve me. This is almighty God in human flesh who has made himself to be a servant of those whom he created. Now, we would do well to pause there and to try and get our minds around all the implications of that and of how that puts us firmly in our place but even that isn't our theme this morning because Jesus has one more thing to say which takes this to another level again the son of man has come not just to serve but to give his life a ransom for many. In the narrative as we read it in Mark chapter 10, we see that it builds up to this great crescendo statement at the end of verse 45. However, the reality is that if we're ever going to grasp verses 42, 43 and 44, And if we're ever going to have hearts and minds that think and feel and behave like that, like servants towards one another, well, the place where that whole process begins is these eight words at the end of verse 45. You have to start there and deal with that and then work back to verses 42 to 44. It begins when you realise there is something which you desperately need and which only Jesus can provide. That is where this servant life begins for the Christian. That's where we obtain this servant-like heart and attitude for and towards one another. It begins with this great statement of Christ at the end of verse 45. Now last Sunday morning we considered that Jesus came into the world to seek and to save the lost. And I quoted a verse from the hymn that we sang at the end of that service. Jesus, the Saviour, this gospel to tell, joyfully came. Came with the helpless and hopeless to dwell sharing their sorrow and shame, seeking the lost, saving, redeeming at measureless cost. And you may recall that I said it was this measureless cost that we would look at today. Last Sunday evening we saw that Jesus came into the world to set sinners free from captivity, the captivity of their sin. And Jesus tells his disciples that he's come to pay their ransom. So you have two slightly different approaches to the same overall theme. And actually there are others in the Bible as well. We have the Bible talking about The wages of sin, the Apostle Paul, of course, in Romans. In other words, what you get paid for your sin, what your sins earn for you, and it's death. The other way the Bible talks about it is that you have guilt as a lawbreaker and there is a penalty for your guilt that has to be paid so the picture there is a a courtroom situation where there is a legal issue at stake and a penalty and sentence that has to be applied and the bible also presents us with the cost of redemption it uses the theme of redemption. In other other words, a price that has to be paid in order to purchase back that which belonged to God in the first place. As you would go and redeem something that you had uh, pawned at the old-fashioned pawnbroker's shop. And here in Mark's Gospel, We find Jesus speaking of the ransom that must be paid in order to secure the release of captives. Different pictures and illustrations, but they're all speaking about the same thing. And they all point us to the same person, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to try and keep things really simple and straightforward this morning. So we're just going to take this one of those pictures that we find in verse 45 of Mark chapter 10, that the Son of Man has come into the world to give his life a ransom for many. And I want to break that phrase down into three little sections, and we'll consider each one of them in turn. So let's begin by considering the first of those phrases, which is simply this, the Son of Man. This is the the term that Jesus frequently uses to address his audience about himself. He speaks of himself as being the son of man. Now the actual phrase son of man you'll find used widely in the Old Testament and there it's used simply to speak of a man. You'll find it employed profusely In the book of Ezekiel where it's clear that Ezekiel uses that phrase to speak of himself in the same way that Jesus does and in the majority of cases in the Old Testament it is a phrase that is used simply to speak of an ordinary man but some of you will know that there is one occasion in particular in the Old Testament uh, where it's used in a very different sense And that's the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. Daniel is given a vision. And in that vision, he sees things. He sees things very similar to the vision of the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. Daniel records these words. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed." Well, there's no doubt at all that the Jews believed this Son of Man to be God's Messiah. Because after Jesus was arrested on the night before he was crucified, he was asked a question. You can find it a few chapters on in Mark in chapter 14. We read this. The high priest asked Jesus, saying to him, Are you the Christ the Son of the Blessed. Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, that was enough for the high priest and all of those with him. They understood the implications of what it was that Jesus has just said and claimed about himself. Jesus is claiming that he is the one who has come from heaven. That he is the one who has a place at the right hand of God the Father. The high priest tore his clothes and said, what further needs do we have of witnesses? They've been paying false witnesses to give testimony against Jesus falsely. We don't need them anymore. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. You see, when Jesus claims to be the Son of Man from the right hand of the Father, here is a claim of divinity. Here is a claim that he is the one who has come down from heaven. What did Stephen say in Acts chapter 7, just before he was stoned to death? Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And he uses the very phrase that Jesus used so frequently concerning himself, the Son of Man. And he says, there he is in heaven, alongside God. Not bowing his face, hiding his face like the angels do, but standing at the right hand of God, an exalted place, a divine place and the apostle john towards the end of his life was he was given that vision by jesus which is recorded for us in the book of revelation he says there in revelation chapter 1 having turned i saw seven golden lampstands in the midst of the seven lampstands one like the son of man clothed with a garment down to the feet girded about the chest with a golden band his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Just like Isaiah did in chapter 6 of his book in the Old Testament. Why? Because this one upon whom their eyes were set in these visions that they had was none other, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who is God, and faced with such a display of divine power and authority and holiness and righteousness, a sinful man finds himself collapsing to the ground with his face in the dirt. John continues, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. So you see, this designation in the New Testament of one who is the Son of Man is of great significance. The phrase isn't used here in a general way, like it so often is in the Old Testament. No, it's very specific. And it changes everything when you read verse 45 of Mark chapter 10. The Son of Man did not come. Did not come from where? From heaven. From heaven? But that's the place where God dwells. Exactly. Eternal God has come in the form of a man. Why? So that, clothed in mortal flesh, the eternal God may die. God has become the God-man so that he may die. He has come, point number two, to give his life. Let me ask you a question. Do any of you know any parent who would not do or give anything in order to spare the life of their child? Too many have endured the agony of losing a child. The last thing that any parent ever wants to have to do is to attend the funeral of their child. That's not what we bring them into the world for. We want them to live. We want them to thrive. We want them to prosper. We want them to live a long and happy life. We want them to do all that as Christians, of course. But that's, that's in us, to want that for them. talking with his disciples in John chapter 10 Jesus said this the good shepherd of course again speaking of himself the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep as the father knows me even so I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again because, of course, Jesus would not stay dead. He would rise again in the power of an endless life forever. This command, he says, I have received from my Father. And so we find Paul writing these words in Romans chapter 8. He, that is God the Father, who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all. So many people in the world have it in for God. Have you met any of them? Why would a God who you claim to be a God of love and mercy and grace, why would he he initiate the slaughter that we read of in the Old Testament? why does he permit so much suffering in the world why do children get cancer men like stephen fry ask those kinds of questions in public they get applauded by many for presenting the god of the bible as this nasty pernicious figure it's one of the words Stephen Fry uses about God, pernicious, nasty, vindictive. This God who does and who allows such terrible things. How can you speak of such a God as being a God of love and compassion and mercy and grace? Now we need to remember, as we've seen, we saw this on, uh, on Wednesday evening. We, we were reminded about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In their sinfulness, their, their minds are blinded. And so their confusion and their revulsion in their blindness, actually in some ways it's understandable. Our only response can be to continue to proclaim the truth and to urge them to see the truth which lies behind verses such as Mark chapter 10, verse 45. What the world needs to understand is that which we have come to understand, as the blindness of our hearts has been removed. Sin is an awful thing. It results in awful pain and suffering and sorrow. It deserves awful judgment and punishment. And it requires the most amazing act of sacrifice this world has ever known, if it is to be remedied. Sinful, worldly hearts and minds are blinded to these truths and realities. These things are spiritually discerned. They require the work of the Holy Spirit within them if they are to be understood. And so, where is your God of love? They ask. And you can, maybe you have heard their jeering, mocking voices of these who are held captive in their sins. but again the bible points us back points us back points us back here is love vast as the ocean loving kindness as the flood when the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood God knew in eternity past what it would take to remedy our sin. And because God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And he demonstrates his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came into the world to be sin's remedy, to be our ransom, your ransom, my ransom, to pay because of our sin. The Son of Man came to give his life, a ransom for many so that's now our third and final point he came to be a ransom for many well it's been the plot of many a work of fiction uh, many hollywood movies and occasionally even hits the headlines in a real life or death drama someone has been kidnapped or someone is held captive and in order to secure their release A ransom must be paid. Now the interesting thing about the ransom that Jesus is going to pay is that it isn't actually the one who holds us captive who is demanding the payment. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Usually it's the one who holds us captive who demands payment. But not in this case. Satan actually has no desire that we should be released from his clutches. He has no desire that we should be reconciled to God. And he certainly hasn't issued a ransom, which if God will pay, Satan will release us from our sins. So, if Satan hasn't issued a ransom demand, who has? Well, here's the thing. The God who sent his own son to pay the ransom is the same God who who demands the ransom be paid. And you might say, well, that really doesn't make any sense. Why would he go to all that trouble? Why doesn't he just cancel out our sins and not bother sending Jesus? Why does he send his own son to suffer Why doesn't he just wipe sin to one side, deal with it another way? Well, you see, it's like this. God is so holy, so righteous, so just. Our sins cannot be ignored. Our sins cannot be overlooked. Sin must be judged. And having been judged must be condemned and having been condemned must be punished. Sin is lawlessness and open rebellion against a holy God. It's the most heinous of offences against the God of heaven and every man and woman and boy and girl is guilty and sin has incurred a penalty which is death. And by death, it means, well, it means physical death in this life. But it also means an eternal death, which we enter into at the day of judgment. But all through the Old Testament, God has shown that he has decreed that he is prepared to accept the death of of another on behalf of those who are guilty. If someone will pay the price, this one may go free. Mercy and grace beyond degree will be shown to those who are guilty in their sins, but the penalty still must be paid. Now, in the Old Testament, that sacrificial system that we see being performed in the tabernacle and then in the temple at Jerusalem by the priests, that whole system was established by God to demonstrate this principle and to be a vivid pictorial illustration of one payment, one sacrifice, which would happen one day, which would be the only sufficient payment. And so you have animals, which must be the choice of the herd or the flock, without blemish. There must be death, there must be bloodshed for the forgiveness and for the remission of sins. For without that, our own death will be the wages of sin. But it was always God's design that the Lord Jesus Christ would come into the world to save sinners. This is why in Hebrews, all of that Old Testament system of sacrifice is referred to as types and shadows of the good things to come. Which would all end when that good thing Has come and all of those things did end because Jesus came to pay the ransom. He is that one final, once for all sacrifice and payment for sin. There are so many wonderful passages in Hebrews which speak about these things, lots to choose from. I've just chosen one for this morning, beginning reading from verse 22 of chapter 7 of Hebrews. Jesus has become a surety, or we might like to use the word, a a certain guarantee of a better covenant. A covenant between God and sinners. There were many Old Testament priests because they were prevented by death. From continuing, They served for a time, they died, they were replaced. They served for a time, they died, they were replaced, and so on. But Jesus, because he continues forever, he has an unchangeable priesthood. He continues as priest forever. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests in the Old Testament, to offer up sacrifices First for his own sins, and then for the people's. Jesus had no sins of his own. That's what makes him the perfect sacrifice. This Jesus did once for all, when he offered up himself. 2,000 years before Jesus died, Abraham was standing over an altar at the top of a mountain, ready to plunge a knife into his own son in accordance with the instruction that God had given him. Yet, on the way up the mountain, Isaac looked around and asked him, where is the animal that we are to offer as a sacrifice to God? And Abraham said to Isaac, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb. And he did for Abraham. And Isaac was spared. And he has for sinners like you and me, that you and I, may be spared to be set free from sin for the justice of god to be satisfied for sinners to be forgiven and pardoned jesus came and gave his life a ransom for many will you show yourself to be one of them by turning from your sins and believing and trusting in Jesus Christ as your Saviour and Lord.